Turn, if you would, to the eighth chapter of the book of Mark. No, we did not have a grandbaby this week. God was gracious and did not send the grandbaby while my wife was out of town, uh, which is good. I did need you this week, Dr. Ben, though. My uh, world history class, we were talking about Abraham, and it happened to mention in the book that uh, circumcision was given as the sign of the covenant. And one of the high school young girls in the class said, well, that's not fair. I said, what's not fair? She said, well, they can't have children then. And I said, no, that's not exactly how it works. <laughs> so we, we kind of talked around this for a while. And after class, one of the young boys in the class hung around and said, now, what do they really cut off? <laughs> the things I have to deal with. But on top of that, you know that one of my, my, one of my daughters is expecting, well, our grandson explained to us how babies come out. Jesus is in your heart, and he goes down to the belly and pushes the baby out and then goes back to your heart. <laughs> Works. Today we're going to try to finish chapter 8, but we're probably not going to make it. There's 16 chapters in the book of Mark, and commentaries point out the fact that chapter 8, obviously the center, when we're halfway through, is the dividing point of the book, because we've seen Jesus doing his miracles, demonstrating the fact that he is the Son of God. And now Jesus is going to be heading toward the crucifixion. At the end of this chapter, he's going to begin to tell his disciples what's really going to happen. And when he does this, his disciples are going to be, well, a little ticked off. In fact, they're going to chastise Jesus for misunderstanding the plan. But we did skip a little passage last week in our lesson, so we'll need to start in verse 14. If you remember, we jumped down to 22 to talk about the miracle, to compare it with the miracle before, but we did skip 22. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. Remember, there's the 5,000 feeding, now there's the 4,000 feeding. He has just done that, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. They're getting in the boat, they're going across, they got one loaf of bread for at least 13 guys. Not enough food. And they only had one loaf, and he, Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So Jesus is trying to give them a teaching, and all they can think about is food. He's talking about leaven. He's mad at us because we didn't need to bring enough bread for the journey. Now, we're not really going to talk about, well, Jesus is not really going to talk about what he was warning them about. They're too concerned 
about bread. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We know that leaven is yeast. It is put into flour and warm water and it rises. And in the Bible, leaven is used usually with regard to sin, but sometimes with regard to the kingdom itself as a picture of how sin permeates whatever it touches. You start with a little bit of leaven, three teaspoons if you want to make a pizza dough. Trust me, I know. You start with it, you mix it into a two cups of flour, and it rises. So he's teaching them they need to watch out for something because it's going to permeate their lives. And what is it? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? Well, it's legalism. This idea that I can, through my own actions, prove, demonstrate that I am more righteous, at least more righteous than you. The Pharisees are continuing to attack Jesus. Remember, that was at the beginning of the chapter because his disciples weren't ceremonially washing their hands correctly. And the Pharisees had this detailed list, if I do this, I am righteous. Well, at least more righteous than you. So legalism is alive and well in our world today. The idea that I can earn my place into heaven. So what is the leaven of Herod? The idea that I can, through political power, save myself and the world. Remember, we're talking in the New Testament times about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Those were the Jews who had gotten into bed with the political power, trying to maintain their position of authority. And Jesus says, look out for both of those, because neither of them are going to help you, and both of them are going to permeate every aspect of your life if you don't watch out for it. But what are the disciples worried about? We didn't bring enough bread. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to him, you stupid, no, he didn't say that. (laughs) Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? He is chastising them. Remember, right below this, we have a blind man who has given back his sight. Right before this, we have a person who couldn't hear giving back his hearing. And he's turning to them and saying, can't you hear? Can't you see? Can't you understand? Don't you remember what's happening? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. They did remember. They just didn't remember. And the seven for the 4,000. How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? 
through this series of questions, he is chastising them because they do not see, they do not hear, they do not understand, and they do not remember what Jesus had done for them. Question, what do we not see, what do we not hear, what do we not understand, and what do we not remember? In the Old Testament, as God is bringing the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, repeatedly he tells them, remember this. They put up some stones so they would remember. Remember that I brought you out of Egypt. Remember that I killed the firstborn. Remember, remember, and we always forget. As I might add, the nation of Israel did. They get into the promised land. We make it through Joshua. Life is good. And then they start forgetting. So... That is the end of last week's lesson. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is north of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? There is another Caesarea that's down on the coast. That's where Paul will be taken when he's imprisoned. This one is up north, so it's Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it from the other Caesarea. And he's in the villages around that, and that's where he goes. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Remember, when we talked about Herod, being worried about Jesus because people were saying he was John the Baptist reincarnated, he asked, who is this guy? And the same answer, by the way, is given. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Now, I always found the John the Baptist one interesting because they're only you know, less than a year apart in age. But you know... At some point, John the Baptist dies because Herod killed him, and his spirit pops out and runs over and hops into Jesus. I guess that's what people are thinking. Or maybe he's Elijah because the Old Testament prophets had said, Elijah will come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Okay, that makes sense. Or maybe he's just another Old Testament prophet. Remember, it had been 400 years since there had really been a prophet in Israel. Now, the truth of the matter is, John the Baptist was John the Baptist, and John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. So, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You are the Christ. Now, we have mentioned in here before that we oftentimes think of Christ as Jesus's last name. You know, Jesus Christ. I am Kyle Scarborough. No, Jesus is his name. Christ is his, well, he is the Messiah and Christ is the Messiah. So we talk about Jesus the Christ. He is the Messiah. And the disciples are recognizing that Jesus is 
the one sent by God. Now, you go, ah, great. They finally understand. Well, they understand about this much, as we're going to see in just a moment. Why? Because what did the Jewish people at this time expect from the Messiah? They expected David, sword in hand, coming in to run the Romans out of the country. That's what they expected. And we, the disciples, are on his side. And guess what? We're going to be his top lieutenants. And we're going to have wonderful dwellings. And we're going to have, we're going to be at the top of the pecking order. Because Jesus is going to take over and be the Messiah. But before we continue this, we have to ask ourselves another question. Today, who do people say Jesus is? I had a uh, professor in one of my classes, real nice lady, wonderful professor, and she loved Jesus the same way that she loved Socrates. Two great teacher philosophers who had taught the people and the people had gotten mad at them and killed both of them. They crucified uh, Jesus and Socrates drank the hemlock. A great, wonderful, moral teacher. I've mentioned here before, there was a pastor at a large church that will not be named in town, and he preached a sermon one time. Who was Jesus? Because Jesus was a great teacher, he died. End of story. Today, if you ask people, people will tell you that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Now, he had some stupid things that he said, you know, all this miracle stuff and all that. That was just added later by his disciples. But Jesus was just a good moral teacher. The, the most important question that we as individuals and as we as all of humanity can answer is, who is Jesus? Because if we believe he was just a great moral teacher, like Confucius or Socrates or somebody else, then we may follow some of his teachings when they are convenient, but he is not the Messiah. He is not the Savior of humanity. So, the disciples, with Peter as their spokesman, Give the right answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he orders them. It's actually interesting. The word that is used here is a lot stronger. Remember, he keeps telling all these people that he performs miracles on, don't tell anybody. Well, this one right here is a much stronger word. He is commanding them not to tell anybody. Why? Why is he telling them that? Well, we're going to head to the point where it's going to be undeniable. That's going to be chapter 16 with the resurrection. But Jesus is working 
God's timetable. And God, you know, Jesus does not want these 12 disciples to start telling people that Jesus is going to kick the Romans out of the country because they still misunderstand what it means for the Messiah to come. We're going to see this in just a moment because here comes the bad stuff. You ready for this? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, as a general rule, don't go rebuking God. <laughs> you can try, and he'll probably be patient with you and listen to you, okay? But it's not going to work. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man must suffer many things. He is going to be rejected by all the leadership in this society. He is going to be killed. Let's just stop right there. Why? Because the next phrase, and after three days, he's going to rise from the dead. Now, if you're a good, well, if you're just you, you understand suffering, you understand being rejected, and you understand dying. You don't understand rising from the dead. So let's kind of forget about that one for a while. Does this match up with their expectation of what the Messiah is supposed to do? The Messiah has to be accepted by all the Jewish community. The Messiah has to be ex accepted so he can be the top dog, so we can all run the Romans out of the country. But guess what? That's not Jesus' plan. Now, let me let you in on another little secret. If they're going to, if Jesus is going to suffer, if Jesus is going to be rejected, if Jesus is going to be killed, what do you think that's saying about the other disciples? This isn't what they signed up for. And Peter kind of gets Jesus over on the side and says, hey, dude, you've got this all wrong. Now, like many things in the scripture, we don't have this discussion. Wouldn't it be great to have a recording of what Jesus, what Peter told Jesus and told Jesus that he's wrong? You don't understand, Jesus. This isn't the way the world is supposed to work. Now, I chuckle about this. Well, only Peter, but we'll get to that. But question, I mean, here's the question. How many times have you looked at God and said, no, you wouldn't say it out loud. I mean, you would never say it out loud. God, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. These things are not supposed to happen. Straighten up, God, and do the right thing. 
And that's what, they're, what Peter is doing to Jesus. Now, we remind ourselves, just to remind ourselves, that the book of Mark is Peter dictating to Mark the book. So Mark actually writes it down based on the teachings of Peter. Now, if I'm Peter and I'm after the resurrection, I might tend to want to forget about this instance. I mean, just, you know, like it never happened. I mean, there's lots of other things that aren't written about. Why don't we just not write about this one too? But Peter is too aware of what has happened to disregard this account. And Peter said, and then, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now that's pretty harsh. Get behind me, Satan. Remember, Jesus has already met up with Satan. He knows Satan. After he was baptized, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan. He knows how Satan works. Does he believe that Peter is standing before him, Satan himself? Probably not. But does he believe that what Peter is saying is what Satan would have him say? Which is there has to be another path. There has to be another way. There has to be a way to accomplish being the Messiah that doesn't involve suffering, rejection, and death. That is the path of Satan. And Peter is bearing the brunt of this, but Jesus is talking to all the disciples and he says, you are not thinking of the things of God, but rather the things of man. Which brings us to the big question. Well, forget you. To me, am I thinking about the things of God or the things of man? And I know the answer to that question, and I'm not going to tell you because it's embarrassing. What does it mean to think the things of God? Well, let's look at the life of Jesus in a little tiny piece. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, my will is to do the will of the one who sent me. Okay. Show me the list and I'll think about which ones I want to do. That's how you'd work and that's how I would work, right? I like item one. Not real keen on item two. Item three, not a chance in the world. Four sounds good. Five, maybe I'll do that one. Why? because we're thinking the things of man, which is what is in it for me. What do I get out of this? The disciples are going to repeatedly argue among themselves who gets to be top dog in the kingdom. When Jesus has run the Romans out, who gets to sit on his right hand? 
Why? Because they're thinking the things of man. What's in it for me instead of the things of God? What would God have me to do? Jesus' life is 100% committed to doing the will of the Father. And Satan knew when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, all I have to do is to get Jesus to do one thing outside the will of the Father. Even if it's just turning stones into bread, all I have to do is get him to do one thing outside the will of the Father, and he's mine. And Jesus said no, because he was thinking the thoughts of God and not the thoughts of man. So we have discussion with Peter. We have a discussion with the disciples. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and come after me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever shall, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you want to be my disciple, here is what you have to do. Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. What do you have to do? Three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. What does it mean to deny yourself? Years, years ago, I had a book discussion group, a bunch of people from work, and uh, we read a C.S. Lewis book entitled God in the Dock. It's actually a collection of his essays and speeches and other things. It's an excellent book. And uh, one of the essays just briefly mentions this idea of denying yourself. Well, the devout atheist in the group, and he really was a devout atheist, uh, that made absolutely no sense to him. Why would you deny yourself something if you had the ability to grant it to yourself? Why would you do that? You know, we think of denying ourselves certain things like, well, sin, okay? I'm going to be so tough, I'm not going to sin in this particular fashion. Or we talk about denying ourselves something that we don't really want in the first place. Or we talk about denying ourselves something that we really can't afford in the first place. And then we get to, well, what's left? But you see, this idea of denying yourself is not just you choosing to not participate in some activity. What he's asking them to do is to deny the self. You see, we are prone to idolatry. And oftentimes we are going to, well, if you look at history, make little wooden statues or stone statues, and we think this is weird today, right? Right? Who would do this thing? Well, people do 
this thing all the time. But the biggest idol of all is me. For me. When I decide that I really am the center of the universe, when I decide that myself really is that which should be top priority in my life at all times, I have become my own idol. A sociologist, a sociologist of religion, wrote a book years ago, Habits of the Heart. And he talked about, at the time, people's religions in the United States. And one young lady described her religion as Sheilaism. Guess what her name was? <laughs> Sheila. I am my own God. Not in some metaphysical, I'm just the center. That's what it means to have the self in charge. And here it comes. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to say no to that. Every commercial you saw during the football game yesterday, every commercial you'll watch during today's football game, Every commercial you watch in anything that you watch is going to tell you, you deserve this. And if you have this, then you will be happy something. You deserve this. Jesus is God. And even Jesus put himself under the authority of the Father while he was here on earth for your behalf and for mine. When Jesus is sitting in the garden before the suffering of the crucifixion, and he said, if it is possible, let this cup go away. But whatever happens, not my will but yours, that is Jesus denying his human self, his human desires for you and me. So, that's the first step. How do we even get over that hurdle? First off, we have to acknowledge that it is a hurdle. As I just said, everything in our society today is directed toward making you think that you are the center of the universe. And guess what? You're not. Back up a little bit. You're thinking the thoughts of man and not the thoughts of God. Back up a little bit. You are not acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that's the first step, and there's two more steps. But guess what? We're out of time. <laughs> so we will leave that one step for you to think about this week. And if you're like me, it'll depress you for most of the week. 
Because you know what? It's hard. You know, we talk about denying ourselves by, like, say, fasting. Okay? I mean, the Sermon on the Mount says, when you fast, don't tell anybody. Now, we don't fast very much today. Why? Because it's denying yourself something. But that's just the start. That's the baby step to teach your body that your body will not be in control of your life. What does Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 say? Present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Why? So that you can learn, you can take the baby steps to learn to deny the self. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you that Jesus is the Christ and that he did not listen to Peter. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.